Hello everybody, good evening, good day to all of you and welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit show. It is great to be back online with you all and let us see who all is there with us today. I can see Kabir, Anish, Priyanshi, Akshit, Crazy Brain, Priti, Vladimir, Adityanath, Samir Das, Adam, Maya, Shukla, Chandan, Ishan, Arnab, Darksiders, Genesis, Sajesh, Sampriti, Ayush, uh, Akshit, Crazy Brain, Darshan, Shao Dog, Rajiv, Verma, Durga, Akshay, Ashima, Delta, Vaishnavi, Ansh, Atharva, Vaishali, Ankush, Rimjim, Harsh, Srihari, DK Bosteki, Varsha Singh, Amit, Shivansh, Ojas, Apratihat, Kapil, Dr. Nishchai, Alok, Tejas, Nikhil Singh Negi, Takate, Shravya, and a whole lot of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you, and thank you so much for being on the show with me this fine evening over here. Uh, so with that said, shall we get right into the questions? Let's do that. Let's get into the questions. What do we have for today? What the questions do we have? Question number one. Ah, this question. Shurveer says, Sir, course kab aarai? Abhi says, very interested. I want to know whether the course is paid or free. Uh, could you please speak about the planned course on history? Dipali says, five hours or less. But anyway, all that. Yeah. Okay, so what is this uh, course about? Yes, like I have announced on the uh, community tab of this channel, I am launching a course on Indian history. I am launching it tomorrow, if everything goes well, if all the technical stuff is right, my team is working on that. So I am launching the course tomorrow, right? So when is the course coming? It's coming tomorrow. Is it paid or free? It's a paid course, right? It's it's going to be a paid course. It's not, not going to be a free course. Um, so what is this course about? It's about the overall... Uh, length and breadth of Indian history. It's focusing, it's going to focus more on ancient Indian history. It's going to focus more on those parts of India's history that uh, that are not typically spoken about in, in textbooks and in courses and all that in, in academia. So I'm going to focus more on ancient Indian history, less on the independent struggle in the past 1000 years of humiliation, which everybody has uh, read about so many times in our textbooks. I'm going to focus more on the ancient history and the parts of history that we don't really know much about. So much of this stuff that I'm going to be speaking about in the course, I have already covered over here. Yes. But what's different about the course? First of all, it's going to be chronological. It will start at the, the logical beginning and it's going to cover some things that I have not spoken about here. Because in the Ask Abhijit show, I answer questions, but there are questions that people have never asked me. And therefore, I have not spoken about those things. So I'm going to be covering all those aspects in a chronological fashion. Uh, the Pali says five hours or less. It's going to be roughly five hours beginning to start off with. But I'm going to be adding more stuff. So eventually, after a couple of weeks, it may end up being double that size. Yeah, double that length. So what I'm releasing tomorrow is just the initial uh, phase of the course. I'm going to be, you will you will witness me building it as as time goes by. As the couple, as the next one or two weeks go by, I'm going to be adding more stuff to it. So you're going to see me create the course in real time, essentially add to it in real time. But yeah, tomorrow you get the uh, initial installment or so of the course, the first big, big uh, section of the course. So it will release tomorrow. It's going to be a paid course. See, it's like this. I have already 
everything i'm doing i'm i'm not holding anything back everything uh, i speak about uh, over here is i'm i'm giving all the information i've been doing that for more than one year the thing is this you get something for free you don't value it you don't value it it's it's just human psychology it's human nature it it applies to me too you get something really nice for free you don't really value it much but if you pay something for it then you're going <laughs> to put, put some value on that so that's why it's going to be a paid course and it's uh, i had said it to be the price of pizza i think it's going to be a little more than the price of a pizza a little more valuable than that but not too much right so uh once the course releases tomorrow as soon as it releases as soon as it, as it goes live i'm going to put uh 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 community post over here and maybe i'll put a video as well right so uh it comes tomorrow all right so those of you who want to take it you can go ahead and do that all right okay rajat says what's your take on the boycott bollywood movement that's happening nowadays considering movies except the kashmir files getting miserably flopped even before their release should it continue to happen um, um who am i to say whether it should happen or not the people must decide india is a democracy it india is a democratic republic right so the people get to decide the people have the power to watch something or not watch something it is entirely the people's choice if you if there is something that the people want they are going to go and take it if there are movies that are being released that they are interested in they will go and watch those movies but if really movies are being released that people have no interest in then they will not watch it i mean what's wrong with that it's it's your choice it's people's choice and yeah some people are calling for this uh, calling for a boycott of bollywood well i think one can kind of understand why why people are so frustrated and angry with bollywood i mean bollywood has been consistently uh, putting out a certain kind of slant in the movies cultural slant and one could say without without lying that bollywood has consistently been hindu phobic so most of the people eventually they will they're going to see through it right and then these things obviously there's going to be reaction to it yeah so it's up to bollywood what they want to do if they want to see there is a demand for certain kinds of entertainment people are watching certain kinds of movies nowadays people seem to be watching movies that are being released in the south of india right so there is a demand for those kinds of movies so it's up to bollywood they, if they want to survive they can make movies the kind of movies that people do want to watch instead of telling people what they what they should watch people are not going to take that nonsense anymore people will not take kindly to be told what to think and what to like and what to watch people have options today that's the good thing about having options it empowers people so um i think what's happening is just democracy in action the people who say that we 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 are all about democracy we are anti fascism and all that well here's your democracy in action be happy about it right so if you if you produce poor quality movies if you produce movies that are preachy and boring and and if you lecture people and if you tell people to uh, espouse a certain kind of ideology it's not going to work it's not going to work and the problem with bollywood is the arrogance they they're like you know if you don't want to watch it don't watch it and then they afterwards they come begging so that's the problem so uh, i have never uh, called for a boycott or anything but i completely understand why people have this sentiment 
right so it's not about should it continue to happen or not continue to happen it's just what's happening it's a natural reaction it's a democratic reaction it's the people's voice the people have spoken a couple of movies have been released recently which completely flopped well well deserved i would say they made movies the kind they they made the kind of movies that people don't want to watch that's simply what it's telling you the people did not want to watch that sort of movie and the so yes so that's what it is the markets will will give you a message based on whether they buy something or not and clearly they're not buying it so that's how it is now it's up to bollywood the ball is in bollywood's court are they going to keep producing such trashy movies that no one wants or will they learn the lesson and and adapt and otherwise there are plenty of options that people have there's so many different uh, forms of entertainment that people can uh, consume these days so bollywood is not that important it's no longer that important or that relevant so th- this is just evolution in process natural selection in process the free market has spoken so yeah i th- i think whatever's happening is 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 right the people have the right to watch or not watch something you can't force them to buy tickets and go and watch your stuff if, if they're not interested so yeah good it's good All right, Vinay Man says, "What are your thoughts on the five pledges by Prime Minister Modi on Independence Day? Can India really become become a developed nation by 2047? And also, what we, as the youth of this country, can do to make India a developed nation?" All right, what are the pledges? Let me take a look at the pledges. Um, let me Google it up. What are the pledges that the Prime Minister uh took? Let's see. Let's put that on the screen. The pledges. One second. I think I have a. news report here i don't want to subscribe sorry all right here we are independence day 22 what are the five pledges listed by pm modi for india at 100 so we have just crossed 75 years after 1947 so another 25 years and we will be at, at the 100 year mark so what are the pledges number 1 making india a developed nation by 2045 pm modi said that every indian must resolve to make india a developed nation by 2045 when india enters its, its 100th year of independence right secondly removing all traces of colonialism i really like to hear like to see this it's it's really great that he has said this it's important for every indian to rid himself or herself from the vestiges of colonialism and slavery in our actions and our mindset very important very important vikshit bharat develop india taking pride in our roots and heritage indians are so ashamed of their own culture and their own roots it's so good to see the prime minister say these things so good to say this yeah uh, unity and integrity yeah well that's something we need to work on <laughs> there are problems yes and uh, sense of duty to among the citizens yes pe- citizens today are all about my rights my rights i have the right to do that i have the right to do that but what are you contributing to the nation and to society most people contribute nothing but they demand rights 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 so that is something people need to learn if you want rights you also have duties that you need to fulfill right so yes very good points the prime minister has made so the question uh, vinay is asking is can india really become a developed nation by 2047 Yes, why not? Uh, 25 years is a is a whole lot of time. It certainly can happen if the right right leadership is play is in place, and the right actions are taken. And obviously, everybody has to contribute. Only the prime minister or only the government doing things, and everybody else just sitting sitting on their backsides doesn't work. Everybody has to contribute. So, what can we as the as the youth of the country do to make India a developed nation? Firstly, uh, stop wasting time doing useless things. 
stop wasting your money on useless things people waste their money on on things they don't need use the money to to develop yourselves and develop the nation invest in, in something that sort of thing right raise your standards stop this chalta hai attitude right don't waste time time is limited time is precious when you are 17 years old you don't realize it yeah but one day it all ends so make the best of the time you have right Cons- build something instead of consuming 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 and enjoying 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 create something create something in a big way or a small way in any small way even if you contribute a little thing little bit of thing to the to the society it's, it's good you know you you you've done something positive so figure out how to contribute something to society a life is a useful life only when you give more than you take right that's how it is think about all the people that you think positively about whom you feel warmly about maybe in the nation maybe in the whole world maybe around yourself in your immediate neighborhood which are the people you like and which are the people you feel warmly about i can guarantee that the, the, the two or three people that you really like and you feel warmly about are the people who give more than they take from everybody else so be that sort of person stop wasting time stop wasting money don't uh, treat time as something that is um, available in an infinite quantity uh, it's a time is extremely precious it's even more precious than money so that's how it is so you need to raise your standards please raise your standards stop being complacent stop being having this chalta attitude which is so endemic in india right so if you do these things and we all work together if we enough of us change our standards and raise our standards india will soon enough become a developed nation hopefully by 2045 or 2047 right so that is what i can say in a brief about this thing yes okay arjun singh says could you please comment on the unescorted access given to the pentagon to the pentagon given by the us to our indian defense uh, whatever stash i don't know what the stash is but whatever yeah okay um seems like a pretty huge deal to me giving us access access to the pentagon means us is really willing to level up defense cooperation with india and this will not be limited to the indo pacific strategy maybe india the us wants us to give them company as a global super cop i'm pretty sure in the next 25 30 years indian army will be in a position to to carry out true peace keeping operations around the world and not the hoax that india has been doing for the, the us has been doing for decades okay 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 firstly let, let's go to the bottom of this this question and, and talk about this peacekeeping ops um why should india carry out peacekeeping operations why simple question why should a nation carry out peacekeeping operations in another place right now india is part of the un and as part of the duty we have to send some people and it gives them a little bit of exposure and all but overall this concept i don't like it if there is a lack of peace somewhere else why is it my problem why do i have to go and do peacekeeping operations what do i get out of it when i say i i mean my nation why should india aspire to be a global supercop the us is not a global supercop the us is a global thug please understand the difference they pretend to be a cop while being a thug it's like a goon pretending to be a cop wearing a nice uniform and then doing whatever the hell they want that's what the us is please understand the difference why is it so so hard to see what's really happening right so i don't know why india should aspire to be a global super cop and carry out peacekeeping peacekeeping operations what does india get in return for for that india's resources india's manpower woman power india's time 
is all precious it should only be used for the upliftment of india and the progress of india that is how the nation state system works borders do exist so that's number one secondly uh unescorted access to the pentagon I mean, <laughs> yeah. unescorted access to the pentagon you think it it means anything whatsoever it means nothing it means they will open the corridor and you can wander around there that's all they will not give access to any real secrets or anything of any value. Indians are so easy to fool. Uh, I, I've read this somewhere. Yeah. Uh, okay. I Let me put this on the screen. Please understand this. The Americans understand Amer Indians very well nowadays. It's like this. Take a look. Highly protocol conscious. Indians are easily slighted and easily flattered. Yeah. So that's what they have understood about Indians. Uh, Indians, ob uh, Indians have this obsession with protocol. Uh, maybe it's because of British traditions, because we are so mentally colonized that we have ingrained all the British nonsense. And they think it's an ingrained superiority complex. It's actually an inferiority complex, whatever. So Indians are, are extremely protocol conscious. You give them some stupid symbolic gesture, they become, they, they go on top of the moon. They, they feel like, yes, they have been given due respect and all that nonsense. Yeah. So that's how it is. The Americans understand this very well. And we can see this in action. People think this so-called symbolic access is some game changer. No, my dear friends, it is not any kind of game changer. It is just a symbolic gesture, a meaningless gesture. It does not bring anything to the table for India. What will India get by wandering around in a corridor when one or two government officials get to wander in some corridor? We are not getting access to any computer system, any database. We're not getting access to any technology that we don't have. None of these things is happening. This is just a meaningless symbolic gesture. And the, I'm sure the media must be tom-tomming it. I, have, I don't watch news or media anymore, thankfully. But yeah, I'm sure that sort of thing is happening. And that's why people are so easily uh, fooled and taken by this. It means absolutely nothing. It is a pointless, symbolic, meaningless gesture designed to fool gullible people. That's all it is. It gives nothing to India. Nothing whatsoever. All right, please understand that. All right, Shubham says, I recently, recently, President... Okay, let me... <laughs> Recently, the Sri Lankan president, uh, Sri Ranil Vikramasingheji, stated that India aspires to be an economic superpower. And if it happens, it will be because of uh, Sri Panditji, Mr. Nehruji. What is my opinion about this? <laughs> what is my opinion about this? You know what my opinion is? I, I am getting the feeling, I'm getting the feeling that Sri... Ranil Vikramasinghe is just as magnificent a, a, a personality as the incredible Sri Nehruji was. That's the feeling that I'm getting. Yeah. So Mr. Sri Ranil Vikramasinghe is just that towering of a statesman and, and a magnificent person just like Mr. Nehruji was. That's all I can say about this. <laughs> Great man, I'm sure, Mr. Vikramasinghe. Great man. Okay, Saurabh says, journalists embrace the idea of free speech. 
Just a couple of days ago, however, when the Ministry of Power strongly rebutted a journalist on Twitter for falsification of facts, an entire ecosystem went into condemning the act and the ministry. Was it appropriate and or justified for a union ministry to do so? Okay, uh, interesting question. So what, what's the thing? Let's see if we have something on the screen. We can put something on the screen. Do we have this Ministry of Power? Ministry of Power. Let us see. Oh, yeah, the first tweet itself. Okay, let's take a look and let's put this on the screen. What did the Ministry of Power do that we should be aware of? So this refers to the tweet of one so-and-so person said to be a correspondent of so-and-so place or whatever. The tweet displays an utter ignorance of the sector which she is reported to be covering. And then they go on to give a detailed explanation of what the facts are and how that lady has, has been uh, distorting the facts or whatever, right? That is what has happened. And uh, see, I was uh, I did not really study this, this incident or whatever, but yes, it has come to my attention that something like this happened. So the question is, was it appropriate for the ministry to do so? Was it justified for the ministry to do so? You know, what is India's national motto? India's national motto, my dear friends, is Satya Meva Jayate. So if somebody does an asatya kind of thing, should the government not correct them? and put the record straight, especially when the so-called journalist is misleading the people. Now, the ministry uh, uh, Twitter handle has gone ahead, rebutted the lady, and put out the facts in, in great detail. Has any journalist been able to prove them wrong, that you are wrong? No. Has the lady been able to rebut them and say and, and, and uh, demonstrate that they, the, the ministry is wrong and she is right? No. It's not happened. Then why is it unjustified or inappropriate for the ministry to put the record straight, to set the record straight? When somebody is lying and misleading the public, should the government not put the record straight? Why is it inappropriate? Why is it unjustified? I just don't get it. I'm glad for a change. The ministry of whatever power has taken a strong stand in public. Typically, the government does, doesn't respond to these things. You see... All kinds of malicious lies being spread over the media, over social media, by various journalists of various places, various organizations. It happens all the time. Journalists embrace the idea of, pre -spe of free speech as an exercise in virtue signaling. But what they do is the exact opposite. Most journalists, I'm not saying all of them, most journalists, a majority of journalists, maybe 5% may be really good and they may be doing their duty. And, and doing real journalism. But I would say about 90-95% are, are doing the opposite of that. They are, they are, they are doing propaganda. They are, they are peddling narratives and, and, and uh, agendas. And the, the ministry has set the record straight. I don't see why there's, there's anything wrong with it. Satya Mev Jayate, let the truth prevail, right? So uh, I'm sure an ecosystem went, must have gone into an overdrive condemning the ministry or whatever. Well, have they been able to prove the ministry wrong? If they have not been able to prove, them, to prove the ministry wrong, then what are they talking about? So I'm glad this happened, and this should happen more often. These journalists who are peddling agendas and narratives and misleading the public need to be called out and exposed. I'm glad it's happened for a change. Really good step. Mr. Veteran says, please explain the history of sapiens in short. What is sapiens? Homo sapiens? I suppose it's homo sapiens. Um, the history of Homo sapiens. Where do we begin? Let's begin at the very beginning. 13.8 billion years before today. 
Yeah, that's where the history of Homo sapiens begins. So 13.8 billion years before today, the Big Bang happened. The, at that time, the entire mass, energy, everything of the universe was concentrated into a singularity kind of thing, a single point. And for some reason, the, the space-time within that expanded in what the journalists call the Big Bang. Yeah, uh, That's what happened 13.8 billion years ago. Then the Milky Way formed about 13.6 billion years before today. The solar system formed 4.6 billion years before today. The earth formed 4.5 billion years before today. Life emerged on earth 3.77 billion years before today. Yeah, the dinosaurs appeared about 240 million years before today. India collided with Eurasia about between 50 and 20 or 10 million years before today. The collision took place for a long time. It's a slow collision, but a massive collision. Then there was this impact, uh, the, the extinction event, the Chicxulub impact uh, extinction event, which killed off the non-avian dinosaurs and, and kept some dinosaurs alive. Uh, so that brought in the, the Cenozoic age, the age of the mammals, right? And then if you go further ahead, and then we find that about uh, that humanity, the best evidence we have is that humanity emerged out of Africa. It, our ancestors first uh, emerged out in the fossil record, at least, in Africa. So the hominids, which is the answer, which is all the great apes and their living relatives and the extinct relatives, they arrived about on the on the fossil record about twenty million years before today, right? Uh, then some more things happened. Then the human chimpanzee family trees diverged about seven or eight million years before today, most likely seven million years before today. Then you have you had all these archaic hominin species, Ardipithecus, Paranthropus, Australopithecus. They came and went, came and went. Then Homo habilis appeared about two and a half million years before today. Then Homo erectus happened, uh, emerged about, about 1.9 million years before today, right? And Homo erectus was alive until about, about uh, 110,000 years before today. Then you had the Neanderthals about 400,000 years before today, the Neanderthals appear on the fossil record, and they were alive until recently, about until 40,000 years before today. Then you had the uh, Denisovans, the Homo Denisovan, or whatever they call it, then the Homo Florensis in Indonesia, that, that region, and then we had Homo sapiens. So Homo sapiens first appears in Northern Africa around 300,000 years before today, 3 lakh years before today. And then there was this out of Africa migration about between 90,000 and 80,000 years before today, probably around 85,000 years before today. And then human beings uh, emerged out of Africa, crossed the Bab al-Mandeb Strait in the, from Djibouti into Yemen, then crossed, crossed the Persian Gulf, and they reached the Indian subcontinent where they were able to sit down and take, breathe a sigh of relief. Long journey over. There's plenty of forest and great uh, uh, all the everything you need to support life for a long duration. So India was the first out of Africa founder zone of the last out of Africa migration of our ancestors, Homo sapiens. And from India, they migrated in all directions. And that is the story in brief <laughs> of Homo sapiens. All right, sir. I hope I have uh, I have satisfied your curiosity. Okay, descendant of Rig Vedic clans says. Who are the Elamites? Some EU experts claim that the so-called Dravidians are Elamites. Is there any evidence of the claim? Who were these Elamite people? Let's let's take a look at who the Elamites were. Let's go and uh, yeah, let's let's put something on the screen. Ilam. So Ilam was a kingdom in Iran, in south southwestern Iran, along uh, along the Persian Gulf region. Let's put that on the map and see what it looks like, right? So Ilam 
I'm going to put Wikipedia on the screen. Don't mind it. Okay. Please always remember that Wikipedia is not a reliable source of uh, information, not necessarily a reliable source of information, but I'm just putting it here for the sake of convenience and saving time. So Ilam uh, was over here in Iran. Let me put the map on screen. This is what Ilam was, right? So I, what happened? Let's bring it back. Here it is. So do you know where the Persian Gulf is? It's west of India, yes. This is the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, over here, if you can see my mouse pointer, over here in this direction, you have Balochistan, Sindh, and then Gujarat and Rajasthan and all that stuff. So Ilam was over here in this region. East of Ilam was Marhashi. And east of Marhashi was the Sindhu Saraswati region. All right. So this is this is Ilam. It was a part of Persia. It was a certain kingdom in Persia between, I don't know, 3000 BC and 500 BC, thereabouts, yeah, something like that. And uh, so they were essentially Persians. They were a branch of the Persian people and they are called the Ilamites and they had their own kingdom and uh, they had a good relationship with the Marhashi, Marhashi people. They went to war with the Akkadians, Rimush of Akkad, and they apparently lost. And apparently Indians fought on their behalf as allies. So there is a story. Indians, as in the, the, the people of Meluha, the people of the Saraswati Sindhu region, they fought as allies with the people of Marhashi and Ilam. <clears throat> so that is something that happened a long, long, long time ago, two and a half or so thousand, four and a half or so thousand years before today. right? So that is what Ilam is. And some people apparently claim that the Ilamites, the people of Ilam, were Dravidians. Well, what is the evidence for that? The evidence is non-existent. The evidence is zero. I have yet to see any actual evidence beyond people's imagination and people's claims and people's opinions that any such thing is true. There is not the even this, this so-called Dravidian race or ethnicity is 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 a lie. It's a fabrication. It's a fabrication. There is no such thing as an Aryan race and a Dravidian race. I mean, <laughs> how many times times have I repeated myself? If a Dravidian race exists, then I am Dravidian. And I'm also Aryan, if Aryan race exists. We are all mixed. If these two races are actually a thing, then all Indians are part Dravidian and part Aryan. But the truth is there is no such thing as an Aryan race and a Dravidian race. So these are all lies. These are all claims designed to to mislead people, right? They are still pushing their ancient colonial agenda, the white man's burden. Please stop listening to this nonsense. We're going to write our own history based on actual facts, not based on feelings and based on narratives. So yeah, we need to do research. We need to do research from the ground up. That's why we need archaeologists to go out there and dig. There are thousands of unexplored archaeological sites in, in India, tens of thousands most likely. Just along one dry, dry river, you have more than 1,500 unexplored archaeological sites. So we need to get going. Our government needs to empower the archaeologists and, and weed out the wrong ones and empower the right ones. Yeah, Maybe create a new ASI, a professional body, instead of the bureaucratic thing that we have today. Yeah, so it's it's going to take time. But the truth will emerge. Like we say, Satya Mayav Jayate. Right? So it needs to happen. So these stories, there is they don't have a, a, any basis in fact. There's not a single actual data point that points in, the, in this direction. So, so that's what it is. All right. So I, I hope you understand what Ilam was. It no longer exists. It was from 3200 BC to about 500 BC, a long period of time. And uh, yeah, it was in Persia and their descendants, I'm sure they are part of the Persian and Balochi and other populations and maybe the Iraqi population and whatnot. Right. So that's what Ilam was. Saurabh says, have you 
Have you gone through the decipherment of Indus Valley Civilization script by Yajnadevam? He said that the method to decipher any script is to use all languages and one which suited the most will be uh, the language of the particular script. Uh, and he found it to be Sanskrit. He solved it as a cryptogram and even proved it to be the predecessor of the, of the Brahmi script. What are your thoughts on these points? I think I would not be surprised if this is correct. Yep. So what is the cryptogram? What is the cryptogram? You take any text, let's say in the English language, and you replace all the letters by some other symbols. Right? Symbols you don't know. So you're creating a code, essentially. People play these games and code breaking and cryptogram breaking and all things. So when you have a script that is not deciphered, you use it as, you, you treat it as a cryptogram and then you use logic to try and solve it. You could do one language at a time and go through, cycle through all the languages in the world and eventually if it is a real script, you will be able to decipher it, provided there is enough data. Or you could use educated guesses to make the process faster. So in the case of the Saraswati Sindhu script, it's either Sanskrit or Tamil. These are the two old languages in India. Uh, there's always this fight going on about which is the oldest. I don't care. Yep. Um, so I am sure what Yajnadevam did was he or she would have compared it with Sanskrit and with Tamil and, and um, done the process of, of solving cryptogram, however it is done. Yeah, I'm not an expert in that. Yeah, <laughs> but I understand the overall rough concept. And to no one's great surprise, surprise, it seems that it is Sanskrit, and uh, I am I have not yet studied the paper. Uh, I, I think there's a paper that uh, he or she has uh, published or put out uh, on put out on the internet. So it is something I am yet to see and yet to study in detail. I have been very busy in in past uh, couple of uh, past few weeks, so I have not yet had the opportunity to do to do that. I will do it, and I will not be surprised at all if it is indeed Sanskrit. I think this was a problem that was waiting to be solved. It was essentially kind of a low-hanging fruit. I've been saying this for a long time. We need to use uh, scientific methods to solve this. And and uh, if it is if it is deciphered, great job. I think the the person deserves at least a Padma award for that. If if this is indeed the case, yeah. So uh, let me let me find some time and go through it, and then I will revisit this question in the future. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear about this. All right. Manoj says, in the previous video, you mentioned that it would be in China's interest to attack India before attacking Taiwan. If that does happen, it's unlikely that India alone would be able to stop China. Mm. Also, I don't see the US sending their army after our stance in the Russia-Ukraine war. Nor do I think Russia will interfere. Russia might want to stand with India, but going against one of their fewest friends left China won't be in their best interest. So what do you think? Who will stand with India? I think I have said this many times. Nobody will stand with India if India is engaged in a war with China. Please understand this. India is alone in this matter. India has no allies. The US is not an Indian ally. Russia is not an Indian ally. We have shared interests. We have more shared interests with Russia than we have with the US. But we do have some shared interests with the US because of the China position, because China is an enemy of India and of the US as well. It is hell bent on upending the world order and it, it doesn't wish India well. So that's why we have certain shared interests with the United States.
But the US is not an ally of India. The USA also, in the long run, does not want to see India rise. They don't want to see another nation come up the way China did in the past. So the US both helps India in some, in some ways and also hampers India and works against India in, in a multitude of ways, in a, in a multiplicity of ways. So that is the uh, kind of relationship India has with the US. When it comes to Russia, you are right. They are in no position to help India if India and China go to war. They would want to help India, but they are not in a position to do it at all. So if there's a war, Russia will stand by and they will remain neutral and they will call upon both sides to stop, stop fighting. So to make, to bring things to the conclusion, nobody will stand with India if India is dragged into a war by China. Now, I disagree with the point you're making here that India won't, alone won't be able to stop China. Are you kidding me? The Chinese won't dare push beyond a certain point. Of course, our, our numerical superiority isn't there. They have way their military budget is like three times our military budget. They have way more fighter planes than India does, and and so on and so forth. Yeah. They have this enormous numerical superiority. They have much more terrain, they have the higher ground in Tibet, etc. And yet there is something that they are really scared of. India has the weapon that everybody is scared of, right? India has nukes. You don't cross the nu any nuclear power. You don't go beyond a certain line when it comes to nuclear powers. Had Ukraine been a nuclear power, the Russians would have never dared invade Ukraine. Understand that. Having this weapon gives you a certain assurance. It, it is mutually assured destruction. You, It's like China, the Chinese understand. They cross a certain red line, it's mutually assured destruction. They will be destroyed, we will also be destroyed. And nobody wants that. You don't, nukes are not for using in war. They are just for deterrence. And India has the deterrent. And that's why the Chinese will not be able to go beyond a certain line. At most, they would want to, to humiliate India in some way, militarily. Maybe cut off the Siliguri corridor, maybe take out big, take a big bite out of some Indian territory, maybe in the Kashmir region, Ladakh region, or maybe in the Arunachal Pradesh region, they may want to do something like that. You know, a quick, short, sharp war and some big and, and, and a rapid, mm -hmm. uh, but small, but not very small territorial gain, that sort of thing. That was That is what, would, what they would want to do at best. And even that is extremely risky for them. Right? It's extremely risky. So I completely disagree with this contention, respectfully, that uh, India won't be able to stop China. Hell no. The Chinese won't dare go, go beyond a certain point. So India is, that's the good thing about India. There is, there is, I mean, there are so many things that are going wrong and things that are not going as well as we would want them to go. But at least we have this. We have the nukes. We have something that everyone is scared of. I mean, we don't want to bully the world and push the world around and act as somebody who goes around saying, Hamare paas atom bomb hai, like the, like the Pakistanis do. We don't do that. But the Chinese will not dare to push India beyond a certain point. Okay, Samarth says, at a time when China and Thailand are holding military drills, Dr. S. Jayashankar, India's foreign minister, visited Thailand on the occasion of celebration of 75 years of Indo-Thai diplomatic ties. What's the objective of this visit? Thailand is also a U.S. ally. It doesn't want to take sides between Washington and, Be and Beijing. Why is Thailand neutral? 
Mm, lots of questions packed into into one. So I am not aware of this visit, but I'm assuming it's it's uh, it's the real news. Okay. So uh, if it's been 75 years since we had Indo-Thailand diplomatic ties, it means that it, it the ties began after 1947. We've had diplomatic ties and other ties with Thailand for thousands of years. Okay, that's a whole different story. But yeah, official diplomatic relations after India became apparently independent 47. That's what we mean. So what's the deal? What is Thailand's position geopolitically? Uh, you say that Thailand is a US ally. They are also doing certain things with the, with the Chinese, holding joint military drills. Thailand also has good relations with India. What is going on? What's going on? Why is Thailand neutral? Why should Thailand not be neutral? Why should Thailand take someone's side? What will they gain by doing so? What does Thailand gain by taking sides? Thailand, let's say, okay, we haven't done the map here, right? Let's do the map. Okay, where is our map? I need to bring the map onto the screen so that we understand what's going on. Come on, come on. Where's the map? Here's the map. Here's a map. So for those who may not perhaps know, okay, I, I, I don't blame you for that. It's your teachers who are to blame. Thailand is a neighboring country of India. You may not realize it, but it is the case. See, this is the Andaman Sea. I'm sure you know where it is. Yes, we have the Andaman Nicobar Islands. And if you just cross the Andaman Sea, you reach Phuket. It's just across the ocean. It's just across the Andaman Sea. So Thailand is India's maritime neighbor, just like Indonesia is a close maritime neighbor of India. So India has two neighbors that most people are not aware of. One is Indonesia, one is Thailand, right? So what is the deal with Thailand? What is their geopolitical position? First of all, if you see the size of the nation, it's a reasonably small-sized nation, yes. Maybe the size of Uttar Pradesh, something like that. Not a very large nation. And obviously, they are no match for a massive nation like China, which is almost right next door. Yeah. So they would want to keep a nation like China um, mollified, pleased, and, you know, act nice, play nice. Thailand is never going to be, well, you can't say, you never say never, but in the foreseeable future, you don't see Thailand emerging as a, as a major geopolitical power. So when you are a small-sized nation with a with a modest economy and a modest military, what you do is you smile to everybody and act nice to everybody, be respectful to everyone, right? Especially those who can be dangerous to you. Now, India is, is not a threat to Thailand. India is not a threat to anybody. So the Thai people, uh, the, the nation of Thailand has no fear when it comes to India. Whom do they fear? They fear two nations, more or less. One is China, because it's the massive beast next door. And the other nation that, 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 uh, that Thailand fears is the United States because it is the global hegemon. And so Thailand is playing nice with both nations and it is not taking sides. You take one side, the other guy will get upset. You take his side, the other guy gets upset. Instead of doing that, just play the safe game, stay neutral, engage with the Chinese in some things here and there and engage with the Americans on other things. Right? That's how it is. Uh, and why do I say that Thai, the Thai, that Thailand fears the US? Look at the news in the past two, three years. When was it? Was it 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021? One of these years, there was this spontaneous, spontaneous eruption of protests by well-educated students in Beijing. They took the, the, the city hostage. Yeah. 
wearing uh, with pink hair and green hair and that sort of thing asking for more democracy and freedom and all that it happened spontaneously out of nowhere have you not seen this before it's called a color revolution and then after a few months it just disappeared overnight vanished overnight so clearly somebody is orchestrating things behind the scenes it could have served as a warning to the thai government to fall in line or else and there's only one nation that that is an expert at staging these apparently spontaneous color revolutions and mass protests it's the us everyone knows this in case you don't know it please grow up please learn this look around you look around what's happening around you what's happening in the world so that's why the thai the thai government is afraid of the us obviously it's afraid of the us thailand is a constitutional monarchy is it something like that it's a military government their head of state is the king and they may or may not have some form of democracy which is just in name that's how thailand has always been the past 60 70 80 years after the world war 2 essentially if there is democracy it's it's a nominal democracy it's not a real democracy and li- listen it's their business what they do with the nation who are we to pass judgment but the americans would like to pass judgment especially if the if the, there is something to gain yeah so the americans want to establish control everywhere exert control everywhere so they they, they have this thing about democracy and human rights it's a stick that beat every country with whenever it is uh, expeditious for them to do so so that's why the thai government is afraid of the us they fear the us so that's why they try to keep the us happy they are also scared of china because china is right next door and they, they don't want to displease china so that is the balancing act thailand is playing when it comes to india good relations warm relations they don't fear india because india doesn't threaten anybody hmm? so that is the situation and i hope that explains some of it yes tejas says were there any civilizations before the indus valley civilization all right the indus valley civilization um, is the old name the, the colonial name we call it the saraswati sindhu civilization or the saraswati civilization so where was it in case uh, someone doesn't know let me explain where this was it was in northern western india northwest india the region of uh, gujarat northern maharashtra uh, western madhya pradesh rajasthan sindh uh, balochistan punjab jammu and kashmir uh, northwest frontier province gandhar all the way up to northern afghanistan this entire region was the saraswati sindhu uh, phase of india civilization so please understand it was not a separate civilization that has disappeared it is just it was just one phase of india's civilization which is an unbroken thing we don't know when indian civilization started it started way before 10000 years before today and the saraswati sindhu phase was one phase of indian civilization that phase came and went but the people did not disappear the civilization did not disappear there was climate change the great river dried out and the people dispersed to other places some people went westwards and went out of india but most of the people went eastwards some settled down in the ganga yamuna uh, region some settled down in gujarat some in rajasthan some went northwards to punjab and kashmir some went to gandhar that's what happened the culture was exactly the same there is no cultural break right so there is continuous cultural continuity in india going back more than 10000 years 
So if you look at the cultural artifacts that you find in the archaeological record in the Saraswati Sindhu region, it's the same culture as what people practice today. The majority of people practice today, right? So that's what it is. So it is. So the Saraswati Sindhu civilization is one phase of India's unbroken civilizational continuity. And the oldest civilization that we know of anywhere in the world is Indian civilization. It is still present. It has still not been broken. It still exists. It began more than 10,000 years ago. Now, some people will say there is something called Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, Gobekli Tepe is one archaeological site somewhere in Anatolia. Please understand the difference between a single archaeological site and an entire civilization. There is a difference. And people... I, I see this question every day. That Abhijit, you say India is the oldest civilization, but Ar- but Gobekli Tepe is older. Please understand, a single archaeological site is not a civilization. I, I don't blame you all for this. It's your teachers who are to blame. It's the education system that is to blame. That has never taught anyone what is the meaning of civilization. A civilization is an extended thing. It's a large thing. A single village or a single archaeological site is not a civilization. It's just a tribal outpost, even though it may be sophisticated, for example. Yeah? People say there is a Kiladi civilization, there is X civilization here and A Y civilization there. No, it's all part of the overall Indian civilization. You see the same characteristics everywhere. So Gobekli Tepe is just one archaeological site. It does not represent a civilization. And it is not the oldest archaeological site that we know of. The oldest archaeological site that we know of thus far is the submerged city in the Gulf of Kambath. That may be more than 12,000 years old. And it was a fully developed city. Like Rakigari or Kalibangan or Mohenjo-daro or Harappa. Fully developed city. It is 40 meters below the, the, the surface of the ocean. It's about 30 kilometers from the shore. So the last time that region was overground was at least 10,000 years before today. And it would have taken centuries to build a city that size and of that sophistication. You know, well-planned city with, with roads and, and uh, regular rectangular buildings and all that. It's not easy. It takes time to build that. So uh, that, as far as we know, and it's not just one city. It's a, it's a cluster of cities under the ocean. Yeah, in the Gulf of Kambath. So that gives you an idea of how ancient Indian civilization is. Right? It's not one archaeological site. It's a it's a cluster. I think it's called the Gulf of Kambath Archaeological Complex or something like that it's called. Yeah. And our ASI has done nothing thus far. All we know is that it exists. They discovered this, but after that they did nothing. Anyhow, so the oldest civilization that we know of, that anybody knows of anywhere in the world, is Indian civilization. And to everyone's surprise, it still exists. We are part of it, even though we may be deracinated and mentally colonized, but we are still carrying the flame in some way or the other. So please keep carrying it. The reformer 007 says, what's the origin of the Balochi people? So, my dear friends, where is Balochistan? Um, in case someone doesn't know, let us see where it is. You know, this always good to see. So, we know where India is, yes. You go west of India, there is this uh, this, this here nation state, which is currently here. It's called Pakistan. And then west of Pakistan, we have this region called Balochistan. So, let's go deeper here. We have the port city of Gwadar. We have the port city of Chabahar. Chabahar is in Iran. Gwadar is in Pakistan currently. 
all of this region is called Balochistan. So about half of it is in Pakistan, half of it is in Iran, right? It's a large region, a significantly large region, and it's very rich in resources and all that. So that is Balochistan. Now, if you go to Balochistan, what do the Balochi people look like? They look like Indians. Their language is a pro- is a properly Indian language. It sounds Indian. You can actually understand much of it. it the closest languages to Balochi would be uh, Sindhi and Kachi and Gujarati and Rajasthani, I suppose. Yeah. So that is what Balochistan is. Now, what is the origin of the Balochi people? The origin of the Balochi people is the same as the origin of the Indian people. Same. Exact same. There is no difference. It is not a separate ethnicity. It is not a separate ethnic group or a separate uh, race or whatever people call it. Yeah. So if you want to actually go deeper into the origin of the Balochi people, there are certain hypotheses that one could make. Yeah. So uh, uh, I think I spoke about this last week. Yeah. The Battle of the Ten Kings that happened God knows how many thousands of years ago. It's the oldest recorded uh, battle or, or, or conflict in human history. So it happened along the banks of the river, um, the river Ravi. It was then called the Purushni. So this is the river that uh, that Lahore is built on top of. Lahore sits on top of this river, on, on the banks of this river. So this battle took place somewhere in this region between uh, King Sudas and an entire coalition of Western Vedic clans. So it was Indians fighting Indians, Vedic people fighting Vedic people in the Rig Vedic or pre-Rig Vedic era. So on the one hand, you have just one guy, King Sudas, with his army, with his people. On the other hand, you have this entire coalition of more than 10 different clans. They are not tribes. Please don't, please understand. These are not tribes. These are clans, extended families. So what were the clans involved in this battle? You had the Pakta clan, the Parshu clan, the Parshwa clan, the Prithu clan, the Madhra, the Das, the Vishenain, the Alina, the Shimyu, uh, the, 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 the Druhius, the Bhalana clan, clan the Brigu clan and so on. So it is believed that the Bhalana clan gave their name to the region of Bolan. And Bolan is in Balochistan. So maybe if you want to go deeper into the, the facts, then most probably the circumstantial evidence seems to indicate that the ancestors of the Balochi people or the people of the Bhalana, Bolan region were the Bhalana clan, which is a very ancient Vedic, Rig Vedic era clan of Indians, of ancient Indians, and their descendants could be the people of Balan, Bolan, Balochistan. Okay, so that is what I can say, and we don't know for sure, but it does appear to be that way. Okay, Aman Hussain Rizbi says, you said there are there's no substantial evidence of sati anywhere in, in, in history. But in my class 12 history textbook, it is mentioned that François Bernier, a French traveler who visited India in the 17th century, in the 17th century, witnessed sati in front of his eyes. Should that not be counted as evidence? Mm. Mm-hmm. Monsieur François Bernier, he came to India and he witnessed something like this. It is a terrible occurrence, isn't it? Terrible. Indians are so evil and so primitive. Yes, pa? So here's the thing. If you go a little bit into the history of this of this fine gentleman, Monsieur François Bernier, you will discover that he is the originator of scientific racism. This entire idea of various races, the, the allegedly Negro race, the alleged 
Australoid race, the, the alleged Dravidian race, the alleged Caucasian race. These are all completely unscientific concepts. But this fellow, Monsieur François Bernier, is the guy who introduced these horrific racist concepts and, and he termed, the, termed them as science. And this continued for a couple of centuries. I think in some places it still continues. Lots of people believe that race is a thing. The Nazis certainly believed that. And you know what? what happened as a consequence of that. It all began with Monsieur François Bernier. So this gentleman, this fine, wonderful person, came to India and he said that he witnessed Indian women being burned alive forcibly against their wishes and so on. Okay, so he made this claim. Why should we believe this claim? Tomorrow, uh, Mr. Joe Biden will say that I saw a UFO out of my window. Should we believe the claim? Why should we believe it? Do we have photographic evidence of it? Do we have video evidence of it? Do we have an interview with an alien? We have none of these things. We have someone's claim. A claim is just a claim. Without evidence, it means nothing. So this guy comes to India. He spends uh, some time in India. Then he writes a book and, and says, I saw this and I saw that. Why should we believe that? Why should we believe it? Will it hold up in a court of law? Let's say you go to the court and produce this book as evidence that this thing happened. The court will throw it out. The court will want evidence, actual evidence, not a claim made by somebody. So it doesn't work like that. Hmm? If some guy comes to India and says, I witnessed this and I witnessed that and I witnessed all kinds of things, it means nothing. Why should we believe it? Why should we believe it? They have made all kinds of outlandish claims. They used to say, these Europeans, that they when they went to... to Puri in Orisha, thousands of people would be crushed under the wheels of the Rath, the Jagannath Rath. It is a lie. We know it's a lie. It, it, we, that, is, that is a horrific sin in Hinduism. Nobody would ever do that. Do that. But they claim that Hindus sacrifice thousands of people under the wheels of this great Rath, the Jagannath. And people still believe that in Europe. It is a complete lie and a complete fabrication. They also used to claim that Indians sacrifice newborn children to the river Ganga by drowning them in the Ganga. That is again, obviously, we all know it's a lie. But these are the claims people, Europeans used to make after coming to India. So there is this well-established track record of, of, of lying about India and, and creating this false atrocity narratives about India. So given this track record, why should we believe a proven racist? Why? Please think logically. Just because something is written in your goddamn textbook doesn't mean it's true. Understand that. Please understand that. Think logically. Look at the data and the evidence at hand and then, then try to use your intelligence which you do have. The gods have given you intelligence. Use it to the right effect. Please. I mean, if you watch this channel, you should learn a little bit of that at least. A little bit. That's what I'm hoping for, right? All right. All right, moving on. Uh, Diku says, uh, were all the Mahajanapadas in northern India and not in southern India? Um, so the, what are the Mahajanapadas? The Mahajanapadas were the 16 great people's republics. So in the Vedic uh, era of Indian history and, and after the Vedic era of Indian history, we had hundreds of kingdoms in India. Hundreds of kingdoms. And they were all governed in a republican fashion. They were all people's republics, Janapadas. 
you know the chinese claim that they are a janapada they call themselves the people's republic of china the janapada of china anyhow so we had all these people's republics the form was a hybrid the form of government governance was a hybrid form of governance kings would be elected and they would be um answerable to the people and there would be a committee of experts or committee of uh, ministers or whatever who would also be elected by the people that sort of thing so you would have kings yeah it would be a monarchy and the king's word would be final but the king would still be answerable to the people and the king if he or did not perform well or did something wrong they, the king could be deposed and removed by the people so that was the kind of democracy we had in india these were the people's republics and out of all these republics we had 16 great republics the mahajanapadas right so that's what it was now the question is where all these mahajanapadas in northern india and none in south india uh, i can think of at least one mahajanapada the asaka or asmaka janapada mahajanapada that was in southern india in peninsular india in the region of andhra pradesh telangana mm, southern maharashtra karnataka that region so the thing is this um, these mahajanapadas they existed a very long time ago they existed before buddhism was even born in india yeah so it's at least 3000 or so years before today so because of that and because we have lost all the written records of our history or most of them in all the great on those whole all those horrible fires that were lit in india's universities and libraries so we don't have the exact data to tell us where exactly these mahajanapadas were located we know the rough geographical region where they would have been so in the case of the asmaka mahajanapada it was in southern india peninsular india let me put that on the screen so it would have been somewhere in in the deccan region uh, southern maharashtra telangana andhra pradesh maybe some parts of karnataka that region so yes this was a mahajanapada in the southern portion of india now people think of india as something that's divided into north and south and people are separate we are separate people and all that nonsense that is so untrue so untrue let me give you a couple of examples during the satvahana period in the in the first millennium ad you had on one in the southern region of india you had the satvahana empire and to the northwest of the satvahanas you had the mahakshatrapas the indo-scythian the, the western the western satraps now in the case of uh, so one of the great kings of the of the satvahanas was gotamiputra satakarni yes he was the greatest king and one of the great kings of the scythians of the mahakshatrapas was rudradaman the second now we know for a fact that the daughter of rudradaman the second married the son of gotamiputra satakarni and she was the queen of of the of the uh, satvahanas yeah so you have north indians or west indians scythians marrying into a southern dynasty and their daughter becomes the queen of the dynasty and she produces offspring who rule the dynasty right so you see this intermarriage we also had the example of prabhavati gupta the son of chandragupta the second i think the one of the greatest emperors of india of all time the great emperor of the gupta dynasty his daughter prabhavati gupta she married king of the vakatak empire in southern india and her husband died after just 5 years so for more than two decades she ruled as the king queen of the vakataks and then her children she had two or three sons and at least two of her sons were kings after her 
So you have this intermarriage that was happening for thousands of years. There is no such thing as North Indian people and South Indian people. Everybody is mixed. This has been happening for thousands of years in India. But your teachers and your textbooks don't teach you these things. So we all think of India as this is divided into compartments. There is no such thing as a North Indian ethnicity and a South Indian ethnicity. Everybody is the same. That's why we all have the same genetics. Please understand that. Okay, Adarsh says, please tell me about the Konkani language, which looks similar to Sanskrit while listening to words in, with, her, with some minor differences. It's one of the languages that's less known to Indians. So where is Konkan? Let's go back to the map. Where is Konkan? So Konkan is the west coast of India, that region, southern Maharashtra, essentially. Yeah. Um, Ratnagiri, the Malwan, etc. Goa also, one could say, is part of Konkan. Yeah. So western Maharashtra, the coastal region, southwestern Maharashtra, essentially is Konkan. If I am not mistaken, if I am wrong, please don't hold it against me. But that rough region overall is Konkan. Now, the Konkani language is classified as a so-called Indo-Aryan language. I think it is in some ways reasonably similar and reasonably close to the Marathi language. Yes. So uh, the question is, please tell me about this language. Well, it's an ancient language that uh, that obviously uh, is a descendant of Sanskrit. Now, here's an interesting tidbit, interesting piece of information. Uh, I spoke about the Vakatak Empire, right? Uh, the Vakataks had a king whose name was Prabharasena II. He was the son of Prabhavati Gupta, the Gupta, uh, the, the queen of the great Gupta emperor, Chandragupta II, I think, right? Uh, so his mother was a Gupta princess, but he was a king of the Vakataks, Prabharasena II. He lived in the 5th century AD. Now, this guy, he was a king, but he was also a poem. And he wrote a poem called the Setu Bandha, which is about Lord Rama conquering Lanka, that sort of thing. And do you know which language he wrote this poem in? He did not write it in Sanskrit. He wrote this poem in a language called Maharashtri Prakrit. And as far as I personally, personally know, it's the oldest known evidence of this language, the Maharashtri Prakrit. And it is Maharashtri Prakrit that was the ancestor of both Marathi and Konkani. 5th century AD. Alright, so I hope you have learned something new from this. And some people believe that the Prakrit, the Prakrit is just one language and it came before Sanskrit. I think some YouTube channels are, are, are trying to uh, promote this narrative. Please understand something. Prakrit is not one language. It's a whole bunch of languages. It's a whole bunch of upper branch languages. You had a Prakrit in Magad. You had a Prakrit in, in, in South of India. You had Prakrits in the West of India. Various Prakrits in various parts of India, which were all upper branch languages, descendant languages of, of classical Paninian Sanskrit. Pali itself was a Prakrit. It was a descendant of Sanskrit. It was an upper branch, kind of distorted version of Sanskrit. You know? You don't say dharma, you say dhamma. It was vernacular language. It was a low language, not a classical high language. So the Prakrits are a whole family of languages, a whole bunch of languages all across India. And they are all languages that descended from Sanskrit. And one of the examples is Maharashtri Prakrit that was spoken in the 5th century AD. And a poem 
in that language was written by the great king not the great king but the moderately great king pravarasena the second okay king of the vakataks okay i hope i i threw some a little bit of new light on this matter okay mazar says i am from sindh can you tell me about the origin of the sindhi language in which script was it written written before and after the arab invasion of 712 ad and why did the brits change its script into arabic in the 1850s did it have something to do with partition um the sindhi language uh, so sindh obviously in case someone doesn't know we know where sindh is but let's anyway put it on the screen sindh is west of gujarat rajasthan right uh, the city of karachi which was once known as meenanagar is the major city in sindh and another city that is quite large is hyderabad yes so sindh is to the west of gujarat kutch and to the west of rajasthan and to the east of balochistan that is where sindh is now if you look at the sindhi language the closest language to sindhi is kutchi kutchi that is spoken in the kutch region of gujarat right run of kutch that that area so the kutchi language is is very similar to sanskrit uh, to sindhi sorry one could even consider kutchi to be a dialect of sindhi and the other language that is closest to sindhi would most likely be gujarati or balochi most likely gujarati more than balochi so that would tell you that the that sindhi and gujarati have if you go back a few centuries they would have probably a common origin um sindhi and gujarat are anyway neighboring uh, regions of india so i would say sindhi must have originated from some ancient prakrit language that came after panini and sanskrit uh we know what languages were spoken in in the western region of india the western region of india saurashtra gujarat and sindh were ruled for several centuries close to half close to half a millennium by the mahakshatrapas who ruled this region yeah um they would have spoken some ancient form of of prakrit the precursor of the gujarati rajasthani sindhi languages so we don't know quite sure which language it was because our historians have done nothing to uh throw light upon this matter but the, the sindhi language comes when did it first originate maybe in the past somewhere in the past 1000 years yeah uh so when it when it comes to the arab invasion of muhammad bin qasim around 712 ad it would not be sindhi that was that was spoken in the region it would have been an ancestral language of sindhi maybe old sindhi or some prakrit region prakrit, prakrit language from this region yeah that's what would have been spoken in the region and there could be a whole bunch of scripts that could be used for it before the arabic script was used for sanskrit uh, for for sindhi i believe it was a variant of the gurumukhi script that was used to write sindhi if i am not mistaken i, I am not an expert in sindhi so i may be wrong but this is this is the gut feeling that i have that it, it was most likely a variant of the gurumukhi script the punjabi script that was used for sindhi and before that there were so many different scripts in western india northern india we had the sharda lipi the sharda script in in north india in 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 the kashmir region and we had various other forms of devanagari and closely related scripts that were used in the region the gujarati script is itself uh, you could see a variant of devanagari and a descendant of the brahmi script so um not 100% sure but something of this sort would have been there one of these scripts a brahmi derived script for sure and something that would be closely related to either gurmukhi or gujarati old gujarati or maybe 
maybe something similar to sharda lipi or something like that that's what i can say but uh, in all my time i have never come across the uh, this specific answer to this question maybe i will do some digging and find out if i can find something if i do i will let you know right vasu alur says um i was recently watching a cricket related documentary series on whatever thing uh, following the australian cricket team which had this episode of the players visiting gallipoli memorial and talking about the anzac spirit since a lot of indian soldiers were part of the world wars is there a similar kind of place where our fallen soldiers have been buried or any kind of memorial created from the, for them outside of india and possibly in india hmm gallipoli anzac all that what is that let's let's go to the map so where is gallipoli gallipoli is in the turkish straits so in i think it was in 1915 that winston churchill decided to uh, invade turkey send a big uh, invasion force a maritime invasion force and uh, he wanted to essentially take istanbul so to take istanbul you have to go through this strait here the dardanelles strait yeah you have to uh, come from the aegean sea which is very uh, which is like a narrow place and then you have to go through this very narrow strait the dardanelles you have to go into the sea of marmara and that's where you reach istanbul and even istanbul has a second strait here yeah the bosphorus strait and that's what you have to cross in order to reach the black sea so that's why turkey occupies this very strategic position in the world so the british wanted to take istanbul to do that they had to go through the dardanelles strait and you have chanakale here and gallipoli somewhere nearby and that's where all the fighting happened yeah and the british were 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 pinned down by the turks the turks fought brilliantly extremely bravely and all because of the leadership of one man mustafa kemal who was later known as mustafa kemal atatürk the father of modern day turkey and on the british side on the allied side you had the australians and the new zealanders the anzacs and you had a whole lot of indian soldiers who are not remembered lots of indians fought on these beaches and died on these beaches and there is no memorial to them i am sure there is a memorial for the anzac soldiers the australian and new zealand soldiers who, who fought and died here but lots of indians died here and as far as i know i have not been here I've never been to turkey but uh, as far as i know there is no memorial to the indians there is an anzac thing over there or whatever and anzac day is com- is is commemorated every year in australia in new zealand maybe in canada also because some canadians were there in this in this entire matter but uh, yeah that's how it is i as far as i know there is no memorial to the indian soldiers who fought there and who died there right there is no memorial in india also for this particular event and the thing is this these our men who fought and died there they were fighting for empire they were fighting somebody else's war they were not fighting for india which is the sad thing they fought and died in vain they fought and died to serve an oppressive racist colonial master they got nothing out of it their their nation got nothing out of it it was a pointless war a pointless death a pointless deaths for indians yeah so that's what i can say as far as i know there is no memorial that has been created by the indian government or any other government for this matter for indians who died in gallipoli 
in the Gallipoli campaign. Okay, Mahesh says, it's been, it's said that Ashok changed after the Kalinga war and decided not to fight any war after that. So why didn't any of his enemies at the time take advantage of that and attack the Maurya empire? Or why isn't any record of any revolt against Akbar? Um, I apologize, against uh, Ashok. Apologies. One must not make such comparisons. Anyhow, so what is the deal? So Ashok changed after the Kalinga War, right? Let's let's uh, put Ashok on the screen. Ashok, uh, Ashoka Empire. Let's see what that looks like. Am I able to find something? Maurya Empire. Uh, let me put that on the screen, right? I'm gonna again put a Wikipedia thing on the screen. Please remember, it's not entirely trustworthy. I know what I'm doing, so I can do that. You don't do it. So this is the Maurya Empire. At its height, right? So, this is what the Mauryan Empire looked like when it was at its peak and it was at its peak at its greatest extent under Emperor Ashok the Great. This is what it looked like. And before the Kalinga War happened, there would be a, a, a hole here where, where Ashok did not have control. And he wanted to establish control over the entirety of peninsular India. And even if you go south, the Tamrapani, Tamraparni Empire, Tamraparni Kingdom and the various southern Indian kingdoms were vassal states of Ashoka, which means that they were all under his control. Even Sri Lanka was under his control. Yeah, nominally or effectively or whatever. So essentially, Ashok had established after the Kalinga War, complete authority and complete control over the entirety of Jambu Dvipa, the entire subcontinent, Indian subcontinent. So when you see that, and when you see this map, do you see any enemies left for him to fight? Do you see anybody who was capable of offering any kind of resistance to Ashok once he had dealt with Kalinga in the way he did? No. The map tells you the entire story you need to know. After, by defeating Kalinga and, and absorbing it into his empire, that was it. He had no enemies left. He had established complete supremacy over Jambudvipa, over the Indian subcontinent. And that is why after the Kalinga conquest, he said that I am now a peaceful man. I now believe in Dharma. Dhamma. Dhammam Sharnam Gachami. Yeah? And now I will not fight any war. There was no more war left to fight. Unless he wanted to go west of Afghanistan or whatever, right? So that's what it is. He had crushed all his enemies. There was nobody left to oppose him. Not a single person. His, his, his control and authority over the Indian subcontinent was absolute. So that's why he became peaceful. Now I can afford to be peaceful. I don't have any enemies left. So now let's do peace. Okay, so that's what happened. There was nothing left to, nobody left to oppose him. He had crushed every single enemy that he had. So that's why there is no record of any such thing because no, no such thing happened. Okay, Rez says, Japan is doing a nationwide urge to drink alcohol campaign, especially for youngsters. Sake viva, for money. They mentioned to be less reliable in the U.S. to increase their defense budget. Japan has 6.11 trillion GDP dollars. Yeah, their civilians died more in suicides than COVID-19. 
Is this a selfish move or a necessary action? Is this a move by Japan to free themselves as a vassal state of the US, even at the cost of their youth? You know, having a drinking campaign and and let's say, see what's happening is that in the past few years, the the I think the revenues of the alcohol industry, the wine industry, liquor industry have dropped a lot, especially after the lockdowns. You know, people were not drinking. And the Japanese government had been doing these campaigns, urging youngsters, the youth, to drink less. So because of that, the liquor industry, the alcohol industry obviously suffered. Yeah, it's not doing well. It's That industry is, has entered a recession. It's not doing well. So now for some reason, the government is saying drink more. So they are contradicting their previous stance. And obviously there's going to be... Um, People are not going to be pleased with that. I'm sure there is a significant amount of, amount of bash, uh, backlash on social media and various other platforms against the government that what are you doing? You've been saying all this time not to, to drink less and now you're urging people to drink more. Doesn't You're, you're doing a U-turn, U-turn. And even if, let's say, the alcohol revenue is double, how is it going to free Japan from, from their, their, their status as a vassal state of the US? The, Japan is a vassal state of the US because the US has more than 130, more than 130 permanent military bases on Japanese soil. That's why it's a vassal state. It has nothing to do with money. Japan has a very high uh, GDP, like you just mentioned, six, six point something trillion. It's nothing to do with money. So I don't know what is the point of this entire campaign of uh, urging youngsters to drink more. I think it's a stupid thing to do. If they're doing a U-turn, they're telling youngsters to do something that's not good for them. Yeah, it, What Japan needs is increased birth rates. And drinking more is not going to make people produce more children, right? So, yeah, I, I, I don't get it. I think it's, it's a silly move. It reminds me of what the Chinese do from time to time. The Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party has millions of, of members, you know, and millions of employees at various levels in, in the nation district level, state level, province level, city level, and so on. These employees are all members of the Chinese Communist Party, and they have to follow and obey the dictates of the uh, party bosses. So from time to time, the Chinese Communist Party orders its employees to smoke more, smoke cigarettes, you know, and that will apparently help the economy. And, and boost the tobacco industry and all that. Uh, I think the Chinese people on average smoke a lot anyway. They have a very high uh, rate of smoking. And those who smoke are apparently chain smokers. So the, the Chinese government had, had ordered its government employees in a certain state, I don't remember which state it was, Shandong or whatever, to smoke like two packs a day or something like that in order to boost the, the tobacco industry's, uh, I don't know, performance or whatever. So this campaign by the Japanese government Kind of reminds me of that. It's silly and I, I I don't know what's the point. It's not going to change anything. It's not overall going to change the fortunes of, of Japan. You want to boost your economy, you have to take some real measures, not urging people to drink more. So I think it's a really silly thing. One of the silliest things I've heard in a long time. All right. Aditi says... Netaji's daughter strongly believes her father's relics are in a temple in Japan and she's ready for a DNA test. However, as of now, we understand there are no DNA presence in ashes, unlike burials. So what is the DNA test she's asking for? And why do the family members of Netaji fail to see Netaji in Gumnami Baba? Yeah, I have no idea. See, the thing is this. Netaji Subhashindra Bose was a national leader. 
he belonged to the entire nation he was not a private individual he was a public personality he was the most public of people he was a national leader which means he belonged to the nation he did not belong only to his family and truth be told the nation has a greater claim on him than some some daughter of his who is not even an indian citizen right so i don't care what his daughter believes or claims that she believes it is immaterial nitaji is a national treasure and the nation needs to uh, decide uh, make the judgment of what really happened and from everything we we know uh, anujdar and uh, chandrachur uh, ghosh have done extensive research they've put out so much data so many facts i think it's very clear that nitaji did not die in this uh, alleged plane crash which never happened most likely most likely i am almost 100% convinced that gumnami baba was nitaji and he lived until 1985 so if his daughter makes this claim it it makes no difference to me she is not an indian citizen yeah she 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 doesn't have skin in the game yeah so if she is making some claim claims there are many family members in the extended bose family who have all kinds of these political affiliations and who i don't know they make various kinds of claims uh, we don't have to take it seriously they have a lesser claim on nitaji subhashchandra bose than the nation all right so that's just how it is uh, um, and about dna test once a body is burned a dna is destroyed heat destroys dna no i remember anuj dar was saying that uh, maybe you can extract mitochondrial dna from the burned charred bones possibly you can take a chance you can you can try it out i'm not sure about even if that is possible or not um, but yeah so um, even if you do a DNA, dna test it's most likely not going to throw up anything mm-hmm. and the actual evidence is out there so i don't know there's some kind of i i don't want to want to make any any such statement but it looks like uh there is an attempt to mislead the people with all this yeah so i don't care what x person is saying or y family member is saying we have the evidence we have all the information we have all the data these uh, researchers have done all the research they have put out all the facts in the public public light public domain and we can base our judgment we can we can judge what really happened based on the evidence that we have not on the opinion or the claim made by some family member so it, it, it to me it's immaterial what she claims or says that she believes it doesn't matter right next okay devashis says who are the natives of australia and how did the europeans steal their lands similar to the case of new zealand the natives of australia are the um indigenous australians the the so called australian aborigines yeah these people so where is australia in case i i'm sure people know where australia is because people watch cricket but anyway let's put that on the uh on the screen let's put the map on the screen where is australia here it is so this continent size island which is in the intersection of the indian and pacific oceans is australia so this territory this continent was first settled by ancient humans approximately 65000 years before today and those humans were the ancestors of today's native australians indigenous australians or so called australian aboriginal people 
these people are dark skinned they have lived here for more than 60000 years and about 5000 years before today there was a, a migration into this region into australia from india we know this for a fact because today the australian native people approximately 10% of their genome of their genetics has indian origin it is of indian origin and this event this change in the genetics happened about 5000 years before today so you could say that the australian aboriginal people are to some extent our relatives if we if you are indians right now what happened is that around less than 250 years ago the first european settlement began in australia less than two and a half centuries before today and today as you can see the australians have been the native australians have been marginalized they are treated like not second class but third class citizens yeah they are relegated to the interiors of the of the of the continent where it's where the conditions are dry and harsh and the europeans and the european origin people they live on the coastline all the nice climatic regions adelaide adelaide melbourne sydney brisbane tasmania there are no natives left in tasmania they have all been eradicated hunted down like wild animals so that's what it is australia is stolen territory they conducted systematic genocide over there they treated the australian aboriginal people like flora and fauna like animals not like human beings and um, they would uh, kidnap the children and take them away to boarding schools and 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 force them to marry white people and, and to in order to change the ethnicity of of the of these kids and all that just terrible terrible business horribly atrocious very racist that's the, that's the legacy that australia has today they pretend to be very nice and all that but this is the legacy that they are laboring under and even today the native australians have not been given justice yeah that's what it is so that in brief is the story you can look it up in more detail okay rohan says we talk about decolonization of our society what about decolonization of our minds our society still worships people who are high in status how do you think decolonization of our society and our minds will happen and we are talking in the colonizers language yes very observant sir yeah so so the main problem you are pointing out is that our society worships people who are high in status hmm have you noticed that no matter what society you go to they all hold high status people in high esteem in high regard whether it's in the us whether it's in europe whether it's in africa whether it's in china whether it's in japan whether it's india whether it's russia everybody holds high status people in high regard that's not a problem the problem is when you assign the wrong people high status in the past before india's colonization at the hands of barbarians before the past millennium of humiliation a certain kind of people would be given high status people who were either highly knowledgeable scholars yeah indians even today indians are they worship knowledge even today indians hold people who are knowledgeable to be in in very high regard but today indians are so confused they also hold entertainers 
in high regard and give entertainers very high status so the question is not that the problem is not that we worship people who are high in status the problem is that we give the wrong people high status that is the problem we give entertainers celebrity status and that is something we have copied from the west we are aping the west like monkeys ape humans that's what we are doing in india we worship entertainers i have nothing against entertainers it's 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 a it's a good business option i mean it's a good career choice if you have the quality and to and if you have the ability to entertain people but entertainers should we give them the, the kind of high status they have today that's the thing the people who contribute the most to society they should be given high status not people who entertain society and and who act for money yeah so that is the problem the problem is wrong values we are putting we are giving the wrong people high status not just entertainers there are other examples as well let's not go into all the examples and make a list of that but you get the point there is nothing wrong with worshiping like you say high status people the problem is when you give the wrong kind of people high status and you don't give high status to the people who actually deserve it that is the problem that is where indian society is going wrong and that's where the west is also going wrong and india is aping the west and that is the entire problem decolonization and of the society in mind will we are not even beginning that process right now yeah everything is colonized our government system our governance system is colonized our bureaucracy is colonized the laws are colonial laws the constitution is a colonial constitution the language like you like you very aptly and observantly point out is which we are using is a colonial language if you don't speak a good, good english you will not get a good job if you don't speak good english you cannot go and fight a court case you see that's where we are colonized so that process has to start at the top yeah but that will be done when the political climate is right i suppose i don't know yeah I, so that's where we are Okay, Saurabh says, "What was the history of witch burning? Is this widespread or rare in European society? Did their great personalities do this, or even in support of this in the past?" I ask this because they bash Indians for the alleged sati practice by fabricating the issue. Okay, what is the history of witch burning? So, to understand the history of witch burning, we have to first understand the concept of a witch. What is a witch? a witch what are the characteristics of a person person who is a witch the first characteristic of a person who is a witch is that it's a female some men were also alleged to be witches but that was a very small percentage overwhelming the overwhelming majority of people who were alleged to be witches were women okay now where did witch hunting happen in europe in west in western society also in north america the salem witch trials and all that and when did this start happening after the conversion of europe to christianity uh, correct me if i'm wrong correct me if i'm wrong so the people who were targeted for being witches were mostly overwhelmingly women this only happened in western society in europe and in north america and maybe other places possibly but wherever you had west western culture and thirdly this happened this started happening after the christianization of europe hmm? so now let's understand what they define as a witch they define a person as a witch what kind of person do they, do they call a witch someone who apparently 
uh, worships the devil in some way or the other. Now, what do we mean by devil worship? Does it mean that they have a statue of the devil and they are praying to the statue? No, 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 no. Anything can be construed as devil worship. If you don't follow the exact orders of your priest, you are a devil worshipper. If you have some ancient knowledge that they don't want you to have, then you are a devil worshipper. See, in ancient society, especially in Europe, in the Celtic parts of Europe, in the Slavic parts of Europe, and traditionally all across the Indo-European world, women were healers. In India, before you had hospitals and all that, it was elderly ladies who would assist in childbirth. They would have the special skills and knowledge to do it properly. And similarly in Europe also, it was elderly ladies who had this medicinal knowledge of herbs, Ayurvedic knowledge and childbirth, midwifery and various other things, you know, healing and all that. Now, this was all part of the ancient Indo-European culture, which manifested itself in different ways all across Europe. Now, once the Christianization started, the church wanted to stamp out every single manifestation of the old culture. And this healing skills and this knowledge of healing was part of the old culture. And it is something that gave women high status in society. And they did not want women to have high status. Women were supposed to be inferior to men. Therefore, any woman who had any such ancient knowledge would be deemed to be a witch and they would burn them alive. Because of this reign of terror, this entire thing went out of, I mean, the 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 position that women had in society evaporated. Women became sub subordinate to men and women became, became for centuries highly oppressed. All the old knowledge was wiped out the the knowledge of healing the knowledge of of herbal medicine of the ayurvedic medicine that was there all that and that's what we call the dark ages of europe horrible horrible time all kinds of diseases all kinds of superstitions apparently which which uh, i mean superstitions were supposed to be driven out by the church but the reverse of that happened yeah these are all facts it's been very well documented okay uh, you know what was the most popular book for the longest time in Europe. The most popular or maybe the second most popular book in Europe for the longest time, for more than a century. It was the Maleus Maleficarum, the hammer of the witches. It was a manual on how to identify witches and how to torture them to death. Lovely. So yeah, that is witch burning. And because they have been so misogynistic and horrific, that's why they try to attribute those characteristics to other people. And that's why they invented this fake tradition of sati. There we are. Okay, Vishal says, Why did the Ottoman Turk Sultan Mehmet the Conqueror believe that his empire was a continuation of the Roman Empire rather than its replacement? Was it a publicity stunt? He did not believe any such thing. He made the claim to legitimize his rule over the people of this region. Okay, let's see where Turkey is, just, just in case in, in, in case somebody doesn't know. So, Mehmet the Conqueror laid siege on, on Constantinople. And that siege lasted months and months and months. It was brutal, it was barbaric. Eventually, he was able to break through. Yeah, Constantinie. And... Uh, yeah, he, he eventually won and he was able to conquer Constantinople and become and, and establish uh, his 
authority over the region and that was the beginning of the ottoman empire mehmed the conqueror that was the beginning of the ottoman empire with the the the, the red apple constantinople as its capital they called it constantinie now this region was the old byzantine empire the city of constantinople was originally called byzantion or byzantium right it was renamed to constantinople by the emperor constantine the guy who officially made christianity the state religion of the roman empire so the byzantine empire was the eastern roman empire it was a continuation of the, of the western roman empire like i said the capital city moved from rome to constantinople at some point in time in the first millennium ad so this region thrace and anatolia was the eastern roman empire now this fellow mahmed the conqueror conquered the region and he was a pretty brutal guy like all turks at the time were right so to legitimize his rule and legitimize his, his authority over the people of this region he declared himself to be the next kaiser rum the next caesar of rome yeah so he said that i am going to honor the old traditions i am going to honor the old roman empire by saying that it my rule is a continuation of that i am the next roman empire uh, emperor so that's what he did it was simply to legitimize his rule over his newly conquered subjects he did not believe in any such thing he knew what he was he knew he was a turk but yeah just to legitimize his rule he made this claim that's all it is nothing more than that Okay, Lage Raho online says, um, yeah, hello, hi. Uh, your views on one of the most controversial cult guru, Osho Rajneesh. Look, I don't know much about Osho Rajneesh. What I can tell you is that when I was a little kid, um, in the 1980s, I had seen some documentary about him. There was, there was this French documentary about Rajneesh. There was this bunch of French travelers who were traveling across the world in the Grand Raid or whatever. And they were traveling across the US and they came across, across this place called Rajneeshpuram in the US. And then they met the people of this place and they they took, they took they interviewed some of them and they probably possibly interviewed Rajneesh as well. So I remember seeing this as a, as a little kid and I was like fascinated. Who is this guy? This Indian guy who has all this big bunch of, of, of American followers and they are all worshipping him and he's wearing this weird clothes, looks like some kind of Mongol conqueror or something. I don't know what it was, you know sitting on a throne and all that i found it really strange but fascinating as a kid and later on we know that he died and the, the, his life and his persona itself is controversial some people said that he was well you know a bad influence on people some uh, other people said that he had the spark of divinity in him and he was an absolute genius i haven't really studied his life in detail or anything i've listened to a few of his you know snippets of his speeches i think it's fascinating what he says you know it, it makes a lot of sense he clearly was an extraordinarily sharp intellect very intelligent person for sure um he obviously had this ashram in pune the rajneesh ashram where people said all kinds of well certain activities took place uh, i i don't know much about that and uh, yeah there were these there were some controversies there were some some criminal cases against them in the us uh, some people say that rajneesh himself was involved in that some people say that somebody else misled him and hijacked the organization and the and the things some people blame sila what's her name sheila right a lady called sheila who was his right hand 
person, some and perhaps she claims that she was trying to warn him and you know take him in the right direction. I don't know. It's a mess. Yeah. So I think he's a fascinating character. I, from whatever I've, I've heard of him, he sounds like an extremely intelligent person. And we don't know what the real, at least I don't know what the truth is. But I think he's a very interesting person. And whatever the whatever I've heard of him speaking, it's it's very interesting and it makes a lot of sense. But I don't know a whole lot about him. So that is as much as, as I can say. Interesting character, but I don't know everything about him. Yeah. Jade Joy says, who was Nostradamus? And does any of his prophecies really come true? If yes, what prophecies he made about India? Listen, I don't know much about this guy. His name was Michel de Nostradam. He was French. He lived somewhere in the, I don't know, last 500 or so years. And he was apparently a fortune teller. He could see the future, you know. He had some certain things, certain ways of doing it. He would enter a trance state and then, I don't know. I don't know. Um, he would receive visions or something. And then he would write it down in these French quatrains, you know, verse, rhyming verse and all that. And that's what we still have with us. And apparently he made few predictions about the future. Now, I remember something. Um, I had this, I, I used to buy these secondhand books, you know, from time to time. And one of the books I had bought was an old book from the 1970s about the predictions of Nostradamus. And this is after 9-11. You know, the September 11 bombing of the Twin Towers in New York. This book, I bought it after this event happened. But the book was printed in the 1970s. It was an old secondhand book. And in the book, the prediction was there that there would be an attack on New York City from the sky. Fire will come from the sky. And the date was pretty close to the actual date, 2001. Yeah, and it mentioned New York City. So that was like uncanny. Yeah, that book was printed a couple of decades, two, three decades before this actually happened. So yeah, that is something I found really interesting. But yeah, so yeah, I think it's interesting, but I don't know much about him beyond that. Some people say that he has made predictions about India, that the next great, uh, what India will be the next great superpower and some world conqueror will come out of India. Something like that I've heard I'm not quite sure about that. But yeah, there was a time when I was quite interested in these things. I found it fascinating. Uh, but I haven't really kept up with this matter. So yeah, it's it's interesting. It's certainly interesting to that, that such people existed and they apparently made predictions that seem to have to some extent come true. It seems he even predicted Napoleon and Hister. You know, that's also interesting. So I'm not sure how true it is. That he actually came up with this prediction, or did somebody fabricate it later on? We're not sure. But yeah, it's interesting. That's what I can say. Okay, Bharat says, this may sound like a stupid question. No, sir, no question is stupid. Go ahead, ask me. As a student, I would like to know, how can one retain the historical data in their minds? Tell us with your experience how to remember things like dates and names and details. Thank you. Listen, I am not good at remembering dates. I often get my dates wrong. Yeah, I don't memorize dates. I will tell you which century something happened in. Yeah, I don't remember the exact date when this guy lived. Um, Nostradamus. I can't remember right now. I'll have to Google it. So I don't memorize dates. I typically know roughly when it happened. Um, so that's one thing. I get things wrong from time to time. I speak like this without doing any preparation. You will find lots of videos in, in which I've made mistakes here and there. I don't care about that. Yeah. 
I one example. I tend to mix up Ghori and Ghaznavi. I tend to mix these two guys up all the time. I I have tried to look it up the exact dates who comes first, who comes who comes next, but still I tend to mix these two guys up. Yeah, because I'm not really interested in these guys. I don't I don't find these two guys interesting, Ghori and Ghaznavi. So the thing is this. I never memorize dates. You try to memorize dates, it's going to become a problem. And I only remember things that I find interesting. Gori Ghaznavi, not interesting. I still can't remember who came first, who came later. But I can always look it up and refer to it. So, for, I can only speak for myself. I don't memorize things. I don't memorize dates. There are lots of things I forget immediately. I only remember things I find interesting. I meet lots of people and i forget them i am i have a very bad memory for faces and for names so in case i meet some of you in the future and i met you before please forgive me if i don't remember you i have i have a very bad memory for faces and names unless you are a fascinating person <laughs> so in advance i beg your forgiveness i am very bad at that i see everybody is different this is the way i am i remember i remember things easily that i find interesting so that's how it works for me um and uh, yeah so that's what i can tell you honestly truthfully transparently that's how it works for me i don't have this prodigious memory for memorizing numbers and names and all kinds of data i remember patterns so when something fits into a pattern i find it interesting and that's how i can recollect that that's why it looks like i i know so many things i i i tend to see patterns that's how my mind works Okay, Calcite says, is Ashwatthama from Mahabharat time still alive? We don't talk about these things in public. Okay, Mango Elaichi says, what do you, who do you think should be the next James Bond? From what I read, they were looking for someone in the early 30s, so Tom Hardy is out of the picture, unfortunately. Why don't they make Veer Das the next James Bond? Make Veer Das the next James Bond. Or make, uh, what's his name, Akshay Kumar the next James Bond. Or Amir Khan. I mean, diversity, right? Why, why do we need a white person? Get somebody from somewhere else and call him James Bond. But most likely, I think they will make, uh, most likely the next James Bond will be a transgender, black, mixed-raced, lesbian woman of color or something like that with, with pink hair or green or something like that. Most likely, they're going to come up with something like that. So I don't know. I would like to see somebody continue, continue the tradition. I'm a man of tradition. I like tradition, especially when traditions are good. Yeah, James Bond is a is a character that represents the the desire of the UK to remain relevant in geopolitics and so on. But it's an entertaining character. It's something I grew up with and something I'm kind of attached to. So I would like to see a good next James Bond. We know that Daniel Craig, Craig is, is done with the role. Somebody else will come, will come in. Um, I don't know. Let's see. Maybe Henry Cavill. I kind of used to like him. I'm not sure what he's up to these days. So yeah, I don't know who should be the next James Bond. Hopefully somebody who continues the tradition, but you never know. These days, everything is up for grabs. They are killing off all the heroes and destroying all their legacies. So who knows? Maybe James Bond is next. They already killed him off on screen, right? And now they will come up with some new story to bring up bring a new new James Bond into the, into the picture. Or maybe they will say that James Bond is dead and a new 007 is coming up. Who knows? Who knows? Anything is possible. Okay. 
I guess we are done for the the questions I had selected. Now let's take some live chat questions for a few minutes. If you have some questions, oh, 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 Monsieur Idris Elba will be the next James Bond. Well, if you are right, then you're right. Uh, yeah, I've heard that they were considering Idris Elba, but I'm sure he's not in his 30s, right? He must be in his 40s by now. Uh, the guy, he's a good actor. He's he's a he's a an impressive actor. He's of course um, of African origin, so not not quite the tradition of James Bond, but well, it may happen. And I have nothing against him. He's a I think he's a good actor, Idris Elba. But if it is supposed to be somebody in his 30s, then maybe he will not quite fit the bill. But who knows? All right, all right, all right. What else do we have? Okay, Rinku Tiwari says, please consider my question. You want me to answer a question? You have to put the question here. See, I saw your question, but there's no question. Please don't do such things. Please, please, please. Um... Tom Hiddleston. Who is Tom Hiddleston? Oh, the tall guy. The, the tall guy who played Loki. <laughs> okay, let's see. Let's see if it is him. Uh, how to be successful in our goals? First of all, you have to be focused. It has to be at the forefront of your mind. You can't put it on the back burner for five days and then again think of it for the, later on. If you have a goal that you really want to be successful at, you have to, you have to think about it constantly and then you have to take action. You have to take action every day that takes you a little bit further towards that goal, right? So, I mean, that's what I can say. That's how you do it. It's actually quite simple, but simple things are the hardest, actually. So that's how it goes. All right. Um, what else do we have? What else do we have... Uh, yeah, POK, the same question every day. Come on. Uh, okay. Mm. Can you please tell me which is the largest empire in Indian history? Because every day I see a new empire and a different shape of every empire. Every empire. Listen, you take any empire, decade upon decade, their shape of the of the boundaries will change. That's how it just goes. But the largest empire. One is the Mauryan Empire, enormous. The entirety of Jambudweep, yes. The entirety of the Indian subcontinent. Secondly, the Gupta Empire was also kind of comparable. It also encompassed Bahalik, etc. Kanishka's empire was incredibly massive. It touched the Caspian Sea and the Aral Sea. It also included the Tarim Basin region, the whole of uh, Afghanistan, Punjab, Kashmir, Sindh, Balochistan, Gujarat, Saurashtra, all the way to Patliputra and parts of Deccan as well. Yeah, massive, massive, massive kingdom. So these are some of the kingdoms I can tell you about. It is also believed that uh, that uh, Lalit Aditya Muktapida also had an enormous empire in uh, which encompassed parts of significant parts of Central Asia. Yeah. So these are some of the empires I can think of off the top of my head. Right. Where else are we? What else do we have? My thoughts on the next Dalai Lama. Well, it is for the current uh, for the for the current Dalai Lama to decide what he wants to do. Because the next Dalai Lama is going to be, well, according to the Tibetan tradition, the next Dalai Lama is the reincarnation of the current Dalai Lama. So once the current Dalai Lama, Lama whoever it is, passes on, dies, uh, 
then they start searching for a small child a male child who will have certain characteristics which indicate that this child is the reincarnation of the previous dalai lama so that's what it's believed so i think the next next dalai lama it's up to the present day dalai lama to decide who will be the next dalai lama does he plan to reincarnate in tibet in chinese occupied territory or does he plan to reincarnate somewhere else that's the first thing he has to answer yeah and secondly does he plan to reincarnate or not maybe he doesn't want to reincarnate maybe he wants to attain nirvana and and never uh, and and break free of the of the cycle of rebirth so if you are a dalai lama i'm sure you have the option to do that or not so it's up to him to to make his position clear whether he wants to reincarnate or not so in case he doesn't want to reincarnate then they can make the tradition the 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 office of the dalai lama um, an elected office or something so it's it's for the tibetan people and for the, for the dalai lama to decide about this but it is something that is important from multiple perspectives including a geopolitical perspective so yeah that's something that needs to be taken up sooner rather than later <laughs> history of adidas in russia and baseball in japan how about the history of fanta in india listen i don't know <laughs> I don't know everything in the world. I I I am stumped. I have no answer here. Baseball in Japan, I I could I could give you a reasonably uh, uh, an educated guess. I would say that baseball would have been introduced into Japan after 1945, after the Americans occu- started occupying Japan. Yeah, they they essentially turned Japan into a zoo, into a kind of Disneyland where they can go and uh, you know have a holiday. So I think it would be somewhere around that time, if I am not mistaken. Yeah, that baseball would have been introduced into Japan, and then the Japanese take it, uh, took it up, I suppose. And Adidas. Now that you ask me, is it Adidas or is it Reebok? The the Gopnik culture, right? The 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 unemployed youth in Russia, they kind of wear those jumpsuits, tracksuits, tracksuits of, of 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 which are. which are typically adidas i believe i think that dates back to the 1980s the olympics in moscow were in 1980 i think that's when adidas first came into 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 russia so most likely that is the beginning of the association of adidas with russia and that's where the gopnik culture probably first originates so it looks like i was able to give you two educated guesses how strange is that anyhow okay any other questions that i find interesting is there any such thing yeah listen <laughs> you want me to take your question you have to make it interesting uh this is a question or a statement malvika says Jordan Peterson is well suited for western philosophies only people try to talk about his doctrines and beliefs in the indian context that is quite undone i agree with uh, malvika uh, jordan peterson his entire world view is completely abrahamic completely western i find overall he is it's all about pain and struggle and 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 sadness and negativity listen he has some some interesting things to say he's a very intelligent person a very well read person but his overall outlook is all about struggle and pain there is no joy in his outlook yeah it's a very abrahamic world view that he has nothing against abrahamic world, culture or anything whoever likes it 
feel free to like it you have the right to like it i'm sure that i don't understand it completely yeah the thing is i find his entire outlook extremely negative and extremely pessimistic the, the, he doesn't believe in joy and happiness yeah it's all about struggling and and striving and and doing things even though there is no happiness in life that sort of thing you know so whatever he whatever he says whatever his his world view is it is completely western completely abrahamic it has no uh, meaning in the indian context so i i overall agree with what malvika says here and with that we are at the end of today's session we have crossed two hours so thank you very much all of you for all the questions always interesting always fun to take your questions and let us keep doing this we will keep doing this and i will see you in the next episode very soon all right so until then take care and i'll see you in the next episode take take care bye